title for the talk this evening is The Most Important Moment of Your Life. And if we just reflect on this phrase, we might just notice what our responses are to the phrase. When what, what arises for you when you hear the most important moment of your life? What comes to mind? We might find, and perhaps easily our attention will turn to significant events of our past, perhaps our very birth, or even the, the meeting of our parents. Perhaps some achievement or attainment, some success, or some place or situation that we feel we have learnt something profound that has occurred at some time in our life. Or it might be that our attention moves to some possibility, to something we hope for, we look for. What might it be, this most important moment of our life? Might it be our death? Might it be something we seek, we strive for, we yearn for in our heart? we can see how our mind moves between what could be the past achievements and old glories and the hope, the future dreams and aspirations that we have in seeking importance, in seeking meaning in our lives. Yet what would it be for us to actually consider that right now is actually the most important moment of our lives? What would that mean for us if we were to relate to where we are right now in this way? There's a, a short poem by a Chinese sage, Wu Men. He said, 10,000 flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. And we can see in the, the reference of the poem to the different situations and circumstances we might find ourselves in in our lives, both the summer and the winter of our experience. What would be the possibility that our mind not be clouded by unnecessary things to make this moment that we're in, irrespective of which season it might happen to be for us, to make this the best season of our lives? This is essentially the invitation of our practice. This is the potential that we are invited to partake of in our meditation. And we may hear often and frequently from people perhaps such as myself how it's such a good idea to be present, to actually live here and now and we can read it in the books, we can um, even tell it to ourselves. And nonetheless, of course, what we often experience is that that's not actually what's happening for us. That much of the time we're living in a way disconnected or distant from the actuality of our experience. We're somewhat lost in a mind-made world 
And the much-loved Thai meditation master, Ajahn Buddhadasa, was asked once how he would describe the world. And his response was quite simple, just three words. Lost in thought. And it's kind of interesting to reflect on how this somehow seems to sum up and capture the nature of what we see going on around us and what we equally at times observe going on within us. And all the complexities, the catastrophes, and the, in a way, eccentricities of life, of human behavior, some way seem and often appear to relate to simply being lost in thought. Lost in the power of fear, lost in the power of desire. And that sense of what it means to be lost, where we don't actually know where we are. But the quality of being present, which we endeavor to cultivate through our day, through the sitting, through the activities, the work, the meals, that sense of being present is, is essentially about knowing where we are. It's not about being in any particular place. It's not about being in any particular experience. But it's actually about knowing, about being conscious and connected to where we are right now. And when that's the case, it really doesn't matter so much where we are. There's this story that's told about a, a businessman driving on a country lane, perhaps not dissimilar to the small lanes that one finds around here in Devon. And for those of you who've driven on them, you may know they're quite like driving in a maze. You can't really see much at all and signs are few and far between. And the farmer was driving and as he drove and he drove, he uh, found that he really wasn't getting anywhere. And he realized eventually that he better ask for help. And he stopped beside an old farm worker who was standing inside of a field and asked him, do you know the name of this road? The farmer said, no, I don't actually. Well, could you tell me what's the name of the closest village? And the farm worker said, well, actually, I'm not sure. Well, can you tell me how to get where I'm going? Oh, really, I don't think I can, I'm sorry, said the farm worker. Well, you're not much help at all, said the businessman, getting rather angry. The farmer looked back at him and said, no, that's true, he said, but then I'm not lost. And sometimes we can perhaps blame all manner of circumstances, all manner of people and situations for the fact that we are somewhat lost in our lives. But we might imagine that the, the businessman travelling in the narrow lanes perhaps was in a hurry, perhaps wasn't paying careful attention to the road signs, perhaps hadn't stopped to get good directions before he departed. And then it's really not that surprising that he would find himself lost. In our practice, in some ways, we take the time, we, we give the care and the, the attention to simply seeing where we are and, and knowing where we are equally, coming to understand where we are going, where the movement of our life is taking us and equally where the movement of our mind and our heart in each moment is taking us. So we start to actually, through being present, through being connected, we start to see that we're not required or obliged to live our life in a way 
or from a place where we feel to be lost or out of touch with what's actually happening where we're not confused and we're not needing to seek someone else's answer or sort of solution to our problems hoping that someone else will tell us where we are because no one else can really do that for us we can only discover where we are ourselves through attending through really taking care with what is happening in each moment so much so much power we give in our lives in our culture to the forces of fear the forces of desire how much of our time is spent trying to get away from those things we do not like we do not wish to have to experience just think about it how much of our time how much of our energy is consumed by that attempt to avoid to escape and to distance ourselves from that which we find difficult or painful and equally how much time is spent pursuing chasing after seeking to gain to grasp hold of and to keep those things that we want those things that we feel will make us feel better or that we believe will bring us happiness or at least some satisfaction or relief from the discomfort and the and the the aspect of our life which we're not willing to open to fear and desire expressing themselves in different forms can seem to dominate our lives fear of course coming in the mild forms of anxiety and equally in the very strong forms of anger and hatred where we're really trying to push away or destroy that experience that person that situation or that part of ourselves which we find difficult or painful to be in contact with and desire coming from a simple mild interest just taking note of something with a slight degree of sort of lifting of the eyebrows to a sense of of real interest where we're entranced and and we can sometimes feel that we actually we have to get we have to possess something whether it be a person whether it be an object whether it be some spiritual attainment that we may have hoped for on our meditation retreat we can find ourselves driven driven seeking this and there's a lovely illustration of the power of this this force that comes from a, i heard from a, a friend of mine a fellow teacher in america who was at a conference with the dalai lama and the the dalai lama was speaking about how every day on his journey to the conference in the morning he would drive or he would in fact be driven down the street past all these shops selling electrical equipment on the way to the conference and for those of you who may have read his autobiography or know a little of him rather delightful and wonderful person the um his holiness the dalai lama he has a great fascination for electrical goods and he described how every morning he'd be driven down this road and be looking looking seeing his eyes getting larger wider as he looked at all these incredible electronic apparatus and equipment and machines and things in the windows of these shops and he said after every day for seven days driving past this he found himself he said i found myself wanting these things desperately i didn't know what they were <laughs> and we may recognize something of ourselves in that how often we 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 give this possibility to something that we don't have to say when i have this then i'll feel happy when i have 
the perfect relationship, the perfect washing machine, (laughs) the perfect spiritual experience. When I get that, then I'll be happy, then I'll be fulfilled. And yet, the truth and the reality of it is that there's nothing that we can gain that although things may give us temporary satisfaction and happiness, what we inevitably find is that it doesn't last. That there is no object, there is no external thing which we can grasp hold of and keep that will give us lasting fulfillment. Because by their very nature, things move and change. And what in one moment is appealing and attractive to us, in another moment may be quite the opposite. And so... We see how these forces of fear and desire pull us back into the past, thinking about our life, thinking about the things that we have experienced that we would wish to have avoided, wish to have avoided, and thinking how we might avoid them in the future. Thinking about those things in the past which we enjoyed and appreciated, wondering how we may keep them or reproduce them in the future. So much of our time, so much of our energy, we spend lost in the past lost in the future, pursuing something, seeking for something, looking for something that we somehow feel to be missing, that we somehow feel to be absent. And we can look at just at our work, when we're working. How fully are we able to simply engage in the task that we're doing? And of course we hear the instructions and it sounds like quite a good idea. Yes, I'll just cut the grass or I'll just dig the garden or pack the programs or wash the dishes or clean the toilets. I'll just do that. And yet how easily we notice our mind going, oh, I'll be able to get a cup of tea soon. Won't that be nice? Or soon it'll be lunchtime. And then I can relax and I won't have to do this work. And yet when we get to the cup of tea, what happens? Or when we get to the meal, what happens? Do we then really stay there and experience, enjoy that cup of tea? Does it really offer us what we thought it would? Or are we in that very moment of drinking the cup of tea, thinking about the next thing, worrying about the next bit of work we have to do, thinking, oh gosh, I hope I have a nice job in the afternoon, or I hope I've got the job that someone else had, because that looked really good. What do we see our mind doing? Of course, it's not that we say we're just going to be present, we're just going to be observing and connected with each moment, and our mind will never move in those directions of past and future. But taking a look at it, see what happens. Is there anywhere in that where it ever comes to a rest? Does that process have any possibility of coming to an end? We receive the message from many around us and from within us as well that we need to find something outside of ourselves in order to find satisfaction and happiness in life. That somewhere distant in some future place, some future time, some future person, who may be another or someone who we ourselves are required to become. We so often receive this message that somewhere out there, somewhere other than where we are now, is what our life's fulfillment or where our life's fulfillment will be found. And we find ourselves leaning forward, leaning into our life. Not really in a place of balance. 
not really connected to where we are because we're not looking, we're not attending to where we are. We're attending to the promise, to the hope of something other. And equally, we're feeling ourselves driven by the fear that we won't find it, that maybe it's not actually out there somewhere and that we're doomed to live life with in its absence. We can be pushed from one experience to another, one moment to another, one thing to the next. And our life can seem like an endless succession of experience after experience, some pleasant, some painful, some the way we like it, and some the way we hate it, some kind of neutral in between and we don't even really pay attention to that. And, and there's really no place to rest. There's really no sense of peace in all of that. And we can observe our culture. It seems almost to be accelerating. And in fact, in the 70s, Alvin Toffler wrote a book, Future Shock, essentially discussing the impact on the human mind of the fact that the process of change was speeding up, that things were changing more and more quickly, and that even today some of us might look at the world and just think, Gosh, it's unrecognisable compared to 15 or 20 years ago, let alone to what our grandparents knew 50 or 80 years ago. And we see that there's this momentum, this movement in our life and our culture, and of course ourselves being part of a culture, take on board this rush, this hurry, this movement on. And we forget the wisdom that is not something that comes just from esoteric, Eastern mystical traditions of, such as Buddhist teachings and others that equally comes from the, just the wisdom of, of our own culture and I'm reminded when I think of the situation of, of a sign which perhaps many of you have seen some variation of but it was in a friend's kitchen when I was a, a child and we would sometimes visit these friends, neighbours and there was just a lovely little picture of a, um, I think it was two children walking in a field and underneath it, the caption, don't worry, don't hurry, and don't forget to smell the flowers. How much of our life are we lost in the worry, where our mind is pursuing something, driven by fear, seeking to resolve some situation in the future, seeking to anticipate and address something that hasn't actually even happened yet? So much worrying in our lives and so much hurrying where in fact our body, equally as our mind is moving to the future, our body is rushing onwards. We're driven. Our mind is driving our body into the next experience, into the next moment, trying to get somewhere, to get something. And we see there's no rest in that. There's, there's a way in which we become exhausted. So what is it to remember to stop and smell the flowers. To actually appreciate that which is right around us. To appreciate this moment that is gifted to us and this possibility, this rather magical and wonderful possibility we have of being present, of being awake, of, of allowing awareness to touch this moment that we're in and see what that might reveal. We may have had opportunity today walking past the flowers or even some of the lovely blossoms in this room just noticing them allowing ourselves to be touched by them we might equally have noticed how we rush past them 
We're not even being aware of their presence. There's a way in which we can learn to change the whole thrust and direction of our lives. But it's not such a not such a large change in some way, because our lives may look much the same. And yet in another way is a total and radical transformation. To actually no longer be so concerned with what the particular experience is that we're having and whether it conforms with what we want, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, which is what tends to preoccupy us. We may not have noticed, or perhaps we have already, just how important it is to us whether things are pleasant, pleasurable, or unpleasant, painful. When we were, perhaps for some of us outside in the morning, enjoying the beauty, the fragrance of the flowers, the, the clarity of the air, and then the farmers start to go about their daily business of spreading some manure on the fields. And the experience changes rather rapidly. It still looks rather beautiful, but there's something about it that our nose recoils at. And sometimes just quite a strong reaction, just an unpleasant experience. And it can change our whole way we feel about that moment, about ourselves and about our surrounding. And then again at some time it, it moves, it changes, it passes on. And maybe again then we feel more willing, more able to connect with what's going on. So what is really important to us? What do we truly value? What do you truly feel to be meaningful in your life? In the space that we make on retreat, this question can sometimes start to surface, start to bubble up into consciousness. And not seeking to produce an intellectual answer to it, not needing to think about it, but just seeing what that question might touch. What is truly important? Is it about, is this life simply about producing, gaining and collecting experiences, consuming what we've produced, spending the time between our birth and our inevitable death, rushing from one thing to the next? Is that all that our life is to be? There's no way we can control the world. We may have even noticed sitting on a cushion we can't even control our own minds. What hope for the rest of all of this incredible life going on around us? We're unlikely to make it the way we want it to be. Our mind wanders off at its own convenience while we attempt to watch the breath or be present in our work. And equally the world seems to operate on rules and laws that do not seem to always accord with the way we would wish them to be. Seeking pleasure, avoiding pain. If we spend all our time and our energy in doing this, we'll have no time for anything else. We'll have no energy left for the the deeper pursuits of life. We may, in our reflections, at times be touched by the urgency of our situation. There's a story from the classic Indian spiritual text the Bhagavad Gita in which in the story Krishna 
who is representing wisdom, speaks with Arjuna, the hero of the story, a warrior. And Arjuna asks Krishna, what is the greatest miracle of this world? And Krishna replies, the greatest miracle is that though all around them people see others dying, they do not believe it will happen to themselves. We might know it intellectually, but how deeply do we let that knowledge run? How willing are we to confront the reality that our existence on this life, in this life, in this body, on this planet, is a finite thing? We know that it will end. We don't know when. We have no guarantee of more than just the moment that we're in. And that sense of urgency was equally expressed or spoken of once by the Buddha when he compared much of humanity to children playing with their toys in the room of a burning house. And the sense of this house being on fire is the reality that this existence is temporary. This is a reality of it that stands before perhaps all others where our bodily life is concerned. And so what's our response to it? Is it, I don't want to know. I'd rather not think about that. I came here to get a quiet mind. Don't tell me about death. Or is it, Gosh, this is precious. This that we have right now is precious beyond words, beyond compare. What are we to make with this precious gift? What might the recognition of this preciousness draw from it, draw out from within us? We have this opportunity here, right now, and equally in our lives, to explore what is possible, what is the potential of this human existence. What is our capacity for cultivating qualities of heart and mind which we feel to be truly important, truly valuable? Can we see that perhaps deepening in wisdom and compassion, cultivating understanding and kindness are of much greater value serve our well-being and the well-being of our world to a much greater degree than any accumulation of experiences, no matter how pleasurable, how grand, or even how spiritual they may be. We can actually take this time, this time that is now, and equally this time that is gifted as our life, which we do not know how long it is, we can make use of it. We can allow our life to shift. Where rather than seeking pleasure, rather than pursuing experience, we actually we shift our focus to understanding, to seeing if we can if we can come to deepen in our clarity, in our recognition of what is most fundamentally true, what is most profoundly important for our life and for all of life. I'd like to read a piece from a book.
title of the book, some of you may know it, is The Education of Little Tree by Forrest Carter. It's a delightful book. And it tells the story of a young Cherokee boy growing up in America, being raised by his grandparents. And in one piece of the book, he's speaking with his grandmother. And I'd just like to, to read this piece. The English is rather unusual, so... Um, I hope you'll be able to follow the, the gist of it, particularly for those of you perhaps whom English is not the first language, but um, it's spoken in a sort of a, well, a rather particular form, I guess. But here, Little Tree relates. He's about, I think, six or seven years old. Grandma said, everybody has two minds. One of the minds has to do with the necessaries for bodily living. You had to use it to figure out how to get shelter and eating and such like for the body. She said you had to use it to mate and have young'uns and such. She said we had to have that mind so we could carry on. But she said we had another mind that had nothing to do with such. She said it was the spirit mind. Grandma said if you used the body living mind to think greedy or mean, if you was always cutting at folks with it and figuring out how to material profit off them, then you would shrink up your spirit mind to a size no bigger than a hickory nut. Grandma said that when your body died, the body living mind died with it. And if that's the way you had lived your life, there you were, stuck with a hickory nut spirit. And as the spirit mind was all that lived when everything else died, then When you were born back, said Grandma, as you were bound to be, there you was, born with a hickory nut spirit mind that had practically no understanding of nothing. Then it might shrink up to the size of a pea and could disappear if the body living mind took over total control. In such case, you lose your spirit complete. That's how you become dead people. Grandma said you could easy spot dead people. She said dead people were when they looked at a woman and saw nothing but dirty. When they looked at other people, they saw nothing but bad. When they looked at a tree, they saw nothing but lumber and profit. Never beauty. Grandma said they was dead people walking around. She said the spirit mind was like any other muscle. If you used it, it got bigger and stronger. She said the only way it could get that way was using it to understand. But you couldn't open the door to it until you quit being greedy and such with your body-mind. Then understanding commenced to take up and the more you tried to understand, the bigger it got. Naturally, she said, understanding and love was the same thing. Except folks went at it backwards too many times, trying to pretend they loved things when they didn't understand them, which couldn't be done. I could see right away that I was going to commence trying to understand practically everybody, for I sure didn't want to come up with a hickory nut spirit. And in this, I find this rather lovely way of speaking of different aspects of ourselves. We see we have the the functioning of our mind that we can sometimes feel rather overwhelmed or even plagued by. The mind that's wanting this, 
pushing away that, that has its place in taking care of us, providing us the needs that we do require, getting food, um, protecting ourselves from stepping out on the road in front of a passing truck. There's a value to that. Fear and desire do actually serve us in some ways. But too often we let them drive us. They rule our lives. And moving our attention away from, rather than being dominated, rather than living totally within that, but recognizing it has its place and its limitations. So not making it into an enemy or into a problem, but just recognizing that we don't live our whole life from that place of getting this and avoiding that. But that there's another part of our being that we can connect with, that we realize is, is this, this potential for understanding and for understanding that is, at the same time as understanding, it is the potential for love. For these two things come together. That when we truly understand things, we do truly find love for them. And often the failure of love in our hearts towards others, towards ourselves, is simply a failure of understanding. An inability to comprehend something that we may find difficult to accept. So we, we bring attention to our life. We cultivate through the intention to be present, the intention to pay attention. We cultivate the capacity to recognize what's going on. Because if we don't recognize, if we're not present, we're constantly drawn off into this habit of our mind, which spends its energy pursuing pleasant experience, attempting to avoid unpleasant experience. And we see how that builds up, intensifies into the greed, the fear and the hatred in our lives and in our world. If we don't attend to this, if we don't see it going on, we just unconsciously go along with it. And here we, we have the opportunity to see it and not to condemn it, not to be harsh or critical of ourselves for the fact that it goes on. And of course, many times we are drawn away, we become lost. Sometimes in rather simple and seemingly innocuous storylines, other times they can be intense, powerful and gripping. And whatever they might be, just to see them as movements. To see that actually we have this capacity to connect with a quality of awareness that we don't need to identify with them. We don't need to believe in the fear. We don't need to believe in the desire that tends to take us away. We can just see it as a movement and we don't need to get rid of it either. It doesn't have power of itself. It only has power if we believe in it, if we think, yes, this is true. I really must get this, whatever it is that I want to be happy. If we believe that, yes, it has power. And equally, if we believe that I have to get rid of it, if I have to stop that thought happening, then it has power also. More to just observe that this happens to recognize the process, to come back to being present. And when we're present, we find we have choices. When we actually see what's going on in our mind, we don't necessarily have to go down a certain path. We don't need to speak before we've actually reflected on what the effect of our words will be. We don't need to act until we've given consideration to whether the action really is in line with what we value and what we feel to be important and true. We can actually pause, take a breath, connect with our sense of, of, of clarity, of kindness. And from that place we proceed. 
So we respond to life rather than reacting to it. Rather than being living our life <coughs> somewhat like an automaton, sort of an autopilot, which we sometimes unfortunately confuse with spontaneity and freedom, just doing what we want whenever we want it. But actually, it's just like we're basically people or situations are pushing various buttons and touching switches, and we just react this way and that way with very little actual choice, with very little actual authenticity in what we do. Because it's just acting out almost like a, a program in a computer or a wind-up toy. You wind it up, let it go, and it just heads off in a particular direction. And sometimes, of course, we find that we've gone off in these directions. We can always begin again. We can always, in that moment, bring the wisdom, the clarity, that recognizes, yes, I was lost, but doesn't need to get into a trip blaming ourselves, saying, oh no, I'm hopeless, I'm a bad meditator, I've failed, I give up, this is a hopeless practice, it's not for me, those teachers don't know what they're talking about. Whatever might come, we don't need to go down that road. We can just see, ah, that was what being lost is all about. And yet, in the moment of coming back, one is no longer lost. We can actually appreciate ourselves. We can actually take joy in the fact that we've realized we were lost. While we were lost, it wasn't a problem. We didn't even know we were lost when we were lost. It was not a problem. But when we become aware of it, we don't need to make it into a problem by struggling with ourselves or that experience. But just to notice whether it really serves us to be dwelling in that unconscious, half-asleep fog of the mind. And when we see that really it doesn't serve us, that really we don't wish to live that way. Because when we live that way, we cause ourselves so much pain. We say and we act. We say things <coughs> and we act in ways that cause ourselves pain, that cause others pain, that leave us feeling regret, remorse, confusion and disconnection. And that we don't really wish to do that in our heart of hearts. And the, the possibility of actually having a choice, of not being compelled to go down those roads, lies within the possibility of being present. So we, we start to value, we start to give this importance, we start to be willing to extend ourselves, to make the effort. It's incredibly simple, this practice. Simply being present. doesn't matter what we're present with. But to never confuse simplicity with ease. It is not easy. It's one of the most difficult things we will ever do. And yet we're so tempted to seek for the easiest way. We're so tempted. Sometimes we think, it's such hard work being present. I thought this was supposed to make my life easier. There's a story told about the Sufi wise man and sometimes idiot, Mullah Nasruddin. One evening he was found by a friend of his on his hands and knees on the, on the side of the road, looking through the pebbles and the dust under the, lamp, the light of a street lamp. And his friend said, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? And Nazruddin replied, I'm looking for my key. I've lost my, the key to my house. I can't get in. And the friend said, Oh, let me help you look. And got down and started looking through the pebbles, looking through the dust. And after quite some time had gone past, he was starting to get a bit fed up and he looked up at Nasruddin and said, Mullah, are you sure you lost your key out here? We've been looking for ages. 
I just can't seem to find it. And Nazarin looked at him and said, Oh no, I lost my key in the backyard, but the light is much better here. Sometimes where we're looking seems to be what is the easiest, the most obvious or the most familiar. Looking amidst the content of our experience, trying to get more pleasant ones, get less unpleasant ones, trying to control it or make it conform to the way we think it should be. And this is, at times, because it's familiar, because we're used to living in this way, it seems that it's much easier to live in this way and that it's much harder work to actually go and look where the light is less strong. But as in the story, the key isn't actually there where we're looking, if we're looking in that way. And it might mean having to go and scrabble in the dark, perhaps bump into some unfamiliar or rather unpleasant objects. And hopefully not, of course, if we're moving mindfully and slowly in the darkness. But if we're not actually looking where the key was lost, the light might be great, but we're certainly not going to find it. And the key to our sense of having lost something is in the idea that we have and our belief that something is in fact missing. In our belief that something is somehow lacking in ourselves, in our experience, in this moment that we're in. And that belief propels us into looking elsewhere, looking in some other place, some other time, or looking to become some other person who will then be what we were looking for. What would it be to drop that idea? To actually completely, totally and unreservedly let go of the idea that what we are looking for is to be found anywhere other than where we are right now. The art of being present will challenge us in more ways than we could imagine possible. Learning the art of being present will demand of us more than we perhaps felt we were willing to give. But what it offers to us, what it offers to us is worthy of all we can give of ourselves in exploring it. Being present means Simply in a moment, we are not bound or driven by the power of fear or desire. It may be present in the mind, but we can know it simply as what it is, and it has no power over us. And when we find that we are not in the grip of fear and desire, when our life is not ruled and driven by these forces, there's a natural ease, a natural connectedness, and a rather effortless joy that simply flowers out of the quality of our presence, out of the quality of the connection that we find, that we cultivate, the, the open-heartedness, the intimacy, and the interest which we bring to the very moment that we're in, to the very experience that is arising, excluding nothing, excluding nothing. Even those parts of ourselves and those times when we feel unable to open or to be with a particular difficult part of ourselves, even that, opening to that, even opening to the fact 
that we can't open to it sometimes and we're just going to be in reaction and contraction and resistance. Letting that be also. Trusting that our heart, our being, our spirit has the capacity to embrace our life. And in that embrace, the pain of separation, the pain of a sense that something is wrong or missing is healed rather effortlessly through the quality of our presence through the quality of a presence which we do not even call our own, but yet which we recognize as being not other than ourselves. In this presence there is joy. It's not necessarily exuberant, it's not necessarily wanting to dance a jig or sing songs, but just the joy of coming to rest, of being at ease in our lives, at ease in the moment. And the joy that comes from recognizing that there's a natural freedom in life which is our birthright which cannot be taken away from us never has been taken away from us and yet which we have not yet perhaps learnt to recognize which we have not yet discovered in its full possibility its full potential so taking this time taking it just one moment at a time sitting standing moving, working, eating, with a sense of interest, exploration, to to deepen in our hearts and our minds, to explore, to see what might be understood. Each moment is rich with potential. If we come to it with the respect that that deserves, and, and a willingness to learn, to open, to see, what might be revealed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.